please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 41. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. So in the passage from the gospel lesson, from Matthew's gospel, which I just read, the Pharisees receive a provocative lesson in interpretation from the hands of Jesus, the theologian. In the context, they'd been questioning him. And Jesus, as is his wont, starts questioning them. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Meaning, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? It's an innocent enough question. And they reply, conventionally enough, the son of David. And Jesus replies, excellent. You guys really know your Bible. No, he doesn't say that. He asks a second question. This one much less conventional. How is it, he says, that David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? And then Jesus quotes from the opening verse of Psalm 110 which is our text this morning. Jesus quotes it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then, still ever the teacher, Jesus asks a third question. It's important to know how to put questions to texts. Jesus is a marvelous example in this. He looks at a text and says, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you another question about it. Here he asks a third one. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? This is the key one. And at this we're told, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, to be fair, this is a difficult line of questioning, I think, especially in the first century. Even for, I think, um, scholars of the law, how can the Messiah, David's son, be David's Lord? And notice in the way Jesus frames these questions. He gives us the key to interpreting Psalm 110. He tells us this is a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah, because Jesus asked the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? 
Psalm 110 is special this way. Many royal psalms, we've looked at a few, you know, psalms about kingship, like this one. It's about the kingship in Israel. Many of these psalms speak of Israel's king, and they point forward, you know, sometimes faintly, indirectly, to the Messiah. But this one is exclusively and directly about the Messiah. And here, the, the king himself, David, in the spirit, does homage by speaking directly of his coming Lord. So this is an important text. It is a dense text. But it's a unique witness to Jesus the Christ. Psalm 110 is, you'll notice, if you, if you have the text in front of you, you'll notice it's short. Seven verses. Seven verses. And to speak plainly, no one is quite sure exactly what verses 3 and 7 mean. Any decent Bible will tell you that the Hebrew for those verses is uncertain. So that leaves us five clear verses. The crucial verses being verses 1 and 4. Now, to get a gauge of just how important this material was for the apostles, for the apostolic church, consider this. Verses 1 and 4. They are cited... Or they are alluded to some 15 to 20 times in the New Testament. Making this psalm, really two verses of this psalm, the most cited psalm in the New Testament, by some distance actually. What psalm is the single most important psalm in the New Testament? Psalm 110. This short little psalm. Those two verses, they're cited in the Gospels. They're cited in Acts. They're a crucial part of the first Christian sermon at Pentecost. They're cited all over Paul's epistles, all over the book of Hebrews. They're cited in 1 Peter. And so, grasping this psalm is critical to grasping Jesus, the Messiah. David's son, yet David's Lord. So we'll make two points. The ones that are there in your bulletin outline. King in verses 1 through 3. And priest in verses 4 through 7. I will point out here, at the request of a couple people, I have placed an answer key to the outline in your bulletin. And it's on the bulletin board in the hallway. With the answers. So, so I will try and do that in the future. But you are going to have to promise, I won't make you take an oath, not to check the answers on the way into the service, but on the way out. So, there is an answer key out there. First, then, the king. So verse 1 is a divine oracle received by David. The Lord says to my Lord. And the second occurrence of Lord here refers to the Christ, the Messiah. 
And we know this because Jesus said that David calls the Christ his Lord in this psalm. Jesus told us. Thus, this oracle that David is overhearing, listening in on, this word David has, it is speech between the Father and the Son. How glorious is that? That, in one sense, is what Scripture is. The Father talking to the Son, the Holy Spirit listening in and telling you what's going on. And that's what's happening here. God, in His everlasting being, is a kind of conversation because He's always with His Word. And the Word faces the Father. The Father gives Himself to the Word, and the Word gives Himself back to the Father. His being is worded being, speaking being, eloquent being. And David, in the spirit, listens in. And now he tells us what was said. Think about that. The first person of the Holy Trinity speaks to the second person of the Holy Trinity in the eternal being of God. David's telling you what they said. This is what God talks about. And what the Lord said to David's Lord was, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's a command from the Father to the Son, the Christ, to assume the throne. It's this very speech which results in the ascension, the enthronement, the royal installation and inauguration of Christ, his heavenly session, as the church has called it historically, his reign. And thus Psalm 110 really is an Ascension Sunday psalm. It's an Ascension Sunday psalm. This little phrase, with which you're all so familiar, sit at my right hand, the place of power, the place of honor, This little phrase is the decisive thing about the present reality of Jesus Christ and your relationship to him. I mean, we know, think of it this way. We no longer know Jesus, Paul says, according to the flesh, by which Paul means according to this age. We don't know him because he's not in this age. We know him as ascended in his regal splendor, that splendor that's unpacked by that majestic vision of the transfigured Christ in Revelation chapter 1. It's that Jesus that we know. The ascended Jesus. And what does the ascended Jesus do? He sends us back to the text of Scripture where we encounter The historical Jesus. But guess what? What happens? The text of Scripture, the historical life of Jesus, drives us back to the one seated at the right hand of God. Right? We don't know Jesus as he's bouncing little babies on his knee or as he's teaching in Palestine, even when we're reading those stories in the Gospels. We're reading them because Jesus is ascended, and the Jesus we encounter in those stories is the ascended Jesus. Think of it this way. 
The ascended is kind of like a circle. <laughs> we know the ascended Jesus only. The ascended Jesus sends us back to the historical Jesus where we meet again the ascended Jesus. It's impossible for us to encounter the historical Jesus directly. The resurrection and the ascension have intervened. We can read texts about him, but through those texts we encounter this ascended one, this regal one. That's why I said this is the decisive thing about the present reality of Jesus Christ in your life, that he is ascended. So it's not one thing among other things. This is why the Father talks to the Son about it. The the chief thing. It's what enables us to know anything at all about him. Sometimes, it's kind of perhaps an illusion. We think we sort of go back and walk along with Jesus. And, you know, when he's doing this, we're sort of learning in the same sort of parallel way. But the whole life of the church, your whole Christian life, is on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension. It's all ascension life, regal life. And so, in this text... He's publicly identified as the Christ. And he's officially empowered. He's seated as the chief executive officer of the cosmos. That's what the Father speaks to the Son. So how important was this? It was important enough so that at Pentecost, in the first Christian sermon ever preached, Peter says this, It was not David who ascended into heaven. And yet he said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for your feet. That's Peter at Pentecost, citing our verse. And the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, he's seeking to demonstrate the exalted superiority of Jesus to all angelic beings. He says, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The angels might have over-listened to it in the heavenly council, but the Father speaks those words to the Son. So he's seated. And this reign lasts, his mediatorial reign is what the church has called it, meaning the reign of the mediator. It lasts until God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. You see that in the text. The until here, until your enemies become a footstool, it includes the present age where Jesus is extending his reign. But it also, as we shall see, points to a future turning point, a climax at the end of the age. Unfortunately, or perhaps simply realistically, Jesus has enemies. It's the Father who told the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. And the enemies, in view in this text, are chiefly other kings. They're political thrones opposed to the throne of the seated Lord and Christ. And they are all being subjugated. They're all destined to be subjugated to the seated one's reign. Paul says the rulers of this age are coming to nothing. And so this little phrase, seated at the right hand of God, is of immense political importance. 
This is why we deny the divine right of kings. For this one is the king of kings. This is why human executive power must be limited. It's why we refuse to divinize the state. It's why all rulers have to be under the law and not above it because they're subject to this rule. It's also why we're optimistic about the future because all history is the history of this Christ. You can write a political history of the world from Psalm 110, verse 1. The history of the seated Christ. This is why. This text is why we yearn for the end. Because the ascended Jesus, he not only sends you back to the historical Jesus, he bends you forward because the ascended one is the coming one. And that's why when Paul cites this text in 1 Corinthians 15, he does it in the context of the second coming. When the dead are raised, he says, when all dominion and authority and power, including death itself, is finally abolished, and when Christ hands the eternal kingdom, a kingdom without enemies, he hands it back over to the Father. So, The nature of this reign, the psalmist expands it further in verse 2. It's verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, that is, from the heavenly Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So the picture here is the king, and he has this royal scepter, and by the scepter he claims the realm, he claims the land, he claims the whole earth as the place of his dominion. He's going to establish his rule in a place currently occupied by his foes. Not in some mystical other place, but in the earth. Now, verse 3, as I mentioned, is obscure. But I just want to say something which I think is reasonably clear from it. The Lord stretches forth his scepter with an accompanying army. Your troops, the text says will be willing in the day of battle. Arrayed in in splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. There are half a dozen viable translations of that last phrase, but it, it seems to be a picture of the people of God clothed in priestly garments. The You and I, the kingdom of priests, rallying, rallying under this king's banner with freshness and vigor for holy battle. Right? The imagery here of the robes, it, it, it evokes the armies clothed in white robes. These armies which follow the Lord in Revelation 19 when he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so the battle in view in this text, while it could and may include historical conquests, the battle here is focused on the final conquest. The final subjugation of enemies when Christ the King comes in glory. That is not to say that he's not extending his kingdom now. But this this is seen, and it's important to get this, the battle in verse 3. Verse 3 in the text speaks of a battle, a day of battle. That day is called the day of wrath in verse 5. The day of judging the nations and decisively crushing the rulers of the whole earth. In verse 6, 
It is then that finally his enemies will be made a footstool, defeated, placed under his feet. So kingship implies dominion. And dominion implies that Jesus is going to subjugate enemies. Um, Of course, the means that we focus on for this is prayer and the gospel and witness. Nevertheless, Jesus is sovereign and he will remove in due time thrones that oppose him. So that is the king, our king. The second point is the priests. In the midst of the psalm of kingship, at least it appears like a psalm of kingship, verse 4 comes as something as a surprise. And like verse 1, it's a divine oracle. It's speech between the Father and the Son, which we are given to hear. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Yahweh, the Lord, swears an oath in verse 4. Not because his word is uncertain, but to assure us, to assure us of the certainty of his promise. And the oath is not about kingship. The oath is this, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is surprising. Besides the strange fact that kings were not priests in Israel, you never had a king who was a priest. The offices were separate. Besides that, Jesus, our great high priest, faces an obstacle to being a priest. Namely, that priests have to be from the line of Levi. And Jesus is from Judah, the kingly tribe. I know this can be difficult to follow. All I can say is it's the most cited psalm in the New Testament. So it turns out that without the shadowy figure of Melchizedek, Mentioned in the Old Testament only here and in Genesis 14. And without the lengthy argument from those two texts in Hebrews 7, without that, the whole atoning sacrifice, the entire priestly work of Jesus would lose all validity. His death would be meaningless. Just another Roman execution. That's why this is so important. Two little texts in the Old Testament. One incident in Genesis 14 and this obscure verse here. There's kind of a lesson here, I think, in in Bible reading. And it's hard to learn it. And it's certainly hard to do it. But texts, texts need to be weighed, not counted. Right? Some texts are more important than others. It turns out Melchizedek is really important, but doesn't appear very much in the Old Testament. And the apostolic church grasped this. It's not volume. It's significance, and it's an art to learn to see this. I, I, I often think of, uh, in, in this connection, uh, Michael Pagani, who was a Hungarian physical chemist in mid-20th century, um, used to say that If it was volume in the physical sciences or in the sciences in general that we were to study, he said we wouldn't study man at all because, you know, it's not like if you look at the cosmos, man is the dominant feature. Polanyi said we would be all spend all of our time studying intergalactic dust because there's more intergalactic dust than there is anything else. There's a lot more material on Balaam 
than there is on Melchizedek. And he's not nearly as important. The way you learn that, we have, thankfully we have AIDS, right? We have the apostolic church reading back. Not to say that Balaam's unimportant, but Melchizedek is of towering importance. So it's no wonder then that along with verse 1, this verse is repeatedly cited. This verse about Melchizedek repeatedly cited in the New Testament. And the argument, which you can read at length in Hebrews 7 in brief, is this. I'm going to give you, the, the, I hope, the cliff notes of the argument. Melchizedek was the ancient priest king who ruled in Salem, the name of Jerusalem, before David conquered it. He meets Abram in Genesis 14, after Abram had won this battle against a set of kings. Abram ties to him. Melchizedek provides bread and wine to Abram. And the whole event demonstrates Melchizedek's superiority over the whole seed of Abraham. And thus over the whole Levitical order of priests. So Melchizedek then is what we call a type. A kind of picture that points forward to Christ. He's an ancient king priest of Jerusalem. Israel didn't have kings that were priests. But Jerusalem had one before David conquered it. And in addition, Melchizedek... He appears in the narrative in Genesis, suddenly. And then he disappears. Book of Genesis, all the important figures have their genealogies, and they're situated in genealogies. But for Melchizedek, there's no genealogy. Thus, no mother, no father in the text. This doesn't mean that Melchizedek was eternal, or even that he was a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ. I can't develop this now, but surely he was the human king-priest of Salem. But he is literarily, that is, the way he appears in the book. He appears out of nowhere, he disappears out of nowhere. So he's, he's what scholars call narratively eternal. Boom. He comes from nowhere, he goes nowhere. He has no beginning, he has no end of days. This is what makes him a picture of the eternal Son of God. The one without beginning of days or end of life. You don't have to believe that Melchizedek himself was eternal. But that's not important for my point here. The point here is that Jesus is priest. Not after the weak and the dying temporary line of Aaronic priests. But according to this eternal order of Melchizedek. He has no successors as priest. On the basis of his indestructible, endless life, he ever lives to intercede for you. He's able to save the writer of Hebrews says, to the uttermost, completely, those who draw near to him because he's this kind of priest. No ironic priest can do that for you. It's like looking at a series of you know, portraits of presidents, you know, from the first president to the 44th president, the one succeeds the other in office. And then you get to some president and you, and, and you realize there are no more portraits. This one is pr- president forever on the basis of an indestructible life. There's an ironic priest, then another one, 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 then another one. Then there's this priest. The priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which preceded the ironic priesthood. The priest on the basis not of lineage, but of indestructible life. And all the other priests, 
we're told they stand. They stand daily to offer sacrifices. This one, having offered himself, sits. Notice that echo of verse 1. He sits at the right hand of God as king and priest. So Hebrews 1 says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God in heaven. That's an echo of Psalm 110, verse 1. That's probably not even included in the 15 to 20 references. So we have here, for the first time in Israel, and for all time, we have one who is king and priest. And the two belong together. We can't separate them. He's merciful, atoning, reconciling king. And he's royal, mighty, sovereign priest. And in verse 5, this royal priest, now enthroned and ascended, he moves from the throne to the battlefield. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of your wrath. Again, the day of your wrath is a term used almost exclusively for the coming day of the Lord. In this day, this is the day until I make your enemies a footstool in verse 2 pointed to. In this day, he quells all rebellion. You see it there in verse 6. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole world, the whole earth on this day. This is the work of the king priest. He's kingly because he powerfully subjects all kings and priestly because what do priests do among other things? They cleanse the sanctuary. They cleanse the land from all impurity. Verse 7 is also difficult, but the idea is the king king priest is refreshed. He lifts his head up high in victory. Now this I realize is a dense text. It is. But it is also unrivaled in its importance to the apostolic church. Sometimes the tougher texts are, are more important. And I think it's important to us. So I want to conclude with three very basic things this text helps us with and establishes for us. And these are indispensable things. And I've already alluded to them, but I, I want to reiterate them clearly so we know what it means to have such a one as our king and priest. So, First, verse 4 alone. Verse 4 alone is necessary for your very salvation. Jesus is your Savior, your merciful and faithful high priest, your intercessor, because and only because he's a priest by divine oath after the pattern of Melchizedek. God's eternal speech, that's the ground of your salvation. And because we, you know, that this is why his purity covers our impurity and his righteousness covers our unrighteousness. His indestructible life saves our forfeited lives. No Levitical priest can save you from your sins. Secondly, this one, David's Lord, seated at the right hand of God, is your king. He's your priest, he's your king. And from there, he guards you. He defends you. You have someone watching out for you from the throne. And he delivers you from all your and his enemies. You have the two things you need in life. Atoning reconciliation and a guardian. 
a protector. And third, because this priest king has ascended, he's entered the veil as our forerunner, we have hope. That might be the third thing we need in life. Our, our lives and all of history have meaning amidst the disorders of history. Notice this text takes seriously the disorders of history, right? It's, it's, it doesn't say Jesus will offer an atoning sacrifice as priest, he'll be seated and ascended as king, and everybody will think it's spectacular. It says from there he's going to have to fight. He's going to have enemies and battles and days of wrath and bloody kings and nations in convulsion. The text acknowledges that. And it says in the midst of that, you have hope, firm and fixed. Your life has definition and shape and direction. So this judgment, this certain sure placing of all his enemies under his feet, already underway, this is why we endure. It's, it's, it's what we watch for and wait and pray for. What would life be like without it? We'd be left in, this, in the world of sheer random power politics. But with this, with this one seated at the right hand of God as your priest and your king, with this, we stand, we confess. And we do so with a kind of defiant gladness that he ascended into heaven, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and that this one is he whose kingdom shall have no opposition, no end. Amen.